turn, if you would, in the Word of God to Psalm 146. I'll read the whole psalm, and that is also the text for the sermon. Psalm 146. Listen to the Word of God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You know what they say about those who speak to themselves. It's a sure sign, they say, of mental decline. And though your loved ones might not say anything to you right away when they first notice it, you can be sure that they are keeping a watch on you so that when there's further signs of regression, they can be on the ready to help you out. But if you look at the Word of God, you'll notice that it's not a bad thing at all to speak to yourself. It can be, of course, depending upon what you say. But you'll notice that this psalmist speaks to himself. He tells his soul in verse 1, praise the Lord. And the whole psalm is really him speaking to himself, telling himself about his God, what kind of God he is telling himself how he ought to respond in light of who this God is. And the interesting thing is, is he, he doesn't just speak to himself, but he argues to himself. He gives reasons why this God of Jacob is the God in whom we ought to put, or in whom he ought to put his confidence and trust. But uh, you shouldn't feel bad if you are eavesdropping on him this evening because he intends for you to do that you'll notice that it speaks in the first person singular at the beginning of the psalm i will praise the lord as long as i live i will sing praises to my god while i have my being as he speaks to himself and then at the end he turns to the whole congregation of the people of god and says to them the lord will reign forever your god o zion to all generations Praise the Lord. And so it's no problem for us to listen in this evening uh, uh, on to what the psalmist says to himself. Well, after a opening declaration of conviction that he will praise the Lord as long as he lives and sing praises to his God as long as he has been, the psalmist then warns himself against putting his trust in princes. Do not put your trust in princes in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. 
And this is not a superfluous encouragement because he knows himself and he knows humanity. He knows that our tendency is always to put our confidence into, in people who are like us. When he speaks about princes, he's talking about the movers and shakers in society, those who can make decisions that affect our lives. And he says, don't put your trust in them. Now this is, I say, not superfluous because this is endemic to us. You can just do a diagnostic test in yourself. You receive bad news from the doctor. What's the first thing that you do? Well, you go home and you speak to your spouse, or if your spouse isn't home, you pick up the phone and you speak to someone. That's where we generally turn when trouble assails us. We speak to someone like us. Instead of, in the first place, going to the Lord, the God of Jacob. And you can see this all over in our society and within the church. If there are problems in the country, the government, they will be able to protect us. We have medical problems, the doctor will fix us. We have mental problems, there's psychology and psychiatry for that. Economics, science, everything will help us. We're self-made, self-reliant people. We can take care of ourselves. That's our native tendency. And you see that in the pages of scripture as well. So Israel has this promise from God that whenever an enemy comes against them, if they will just cry out to the Lord, the enemy will flee from them in seven directions. And so when Assyria comes against Israel, you would know, you would think you would know what Israel would do. They would go to the Lord, of course they would. No, not so fast. They go to Egypt, make an alliance with Egypt to team up against the Assyrians. And so he knows the human heart when he says to himself, do not put your trust in princes. But I said he doesn't just state the facts, he argues the facts. Well, why shouldn't we put our trust in princes, in a son of man? Well, he tells us that at the end of verse three. First of all, it's futile because they have no salvation. They might be able to help you in a myriad of ways. To some degree, they can be a blessing. That is our fellow humans. Of course they do. We wouldn't want to discount that at all. But for what we really need, the salvation of our souls, reconciliation with the holy God, restoration to the way things were before sin has ruined us, well, there's no way that you can trust any humans for that. They're just unable. They have no salvation. They cannot help you in that way. And so it's folly to do so. But not only is it futile, the reason it's futile to put your trust in princes is because of their fragility. He says in verse four, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. And so you can assume that uh, perhaps someone does have a good scheme uh, for your life. They've crossed all the T's, they've dotted all the I's, it's an excellent plan. But before they are able to put it into practice, they perish, and when they die, their plans die with them. They are futile because they are fragile. There is a standing monument to this verse in Oban, which is a small town on the west coast of Scotland, a town of 8,000 
people, at least year round. It just swells in the summer when there are tourists. It's a lovely town if you can catch it on a sunny day, and there are a few of those days a year. And um, it's, it's a marvelous place. I think some of us have, have been here. I think Nick and uh, Andrea were there this past year, and, and I was there a number of times when I lived in Scotland. But if you stand in the harbor and you look towards the town, which is nestled on the hill, at the top of the town, there is this, this hill called Battery Hill. And on Battery Hill, there's this mammoth granite structure. It's called McCaig's Tower. It was built by John McCaig. He started building it in 1897. And he, he was quite inspired by classical architecture. And so it's modeled somewhat after the Colosseum. And so it has two tiers. And in those tiers, there are arches. And he was going to put a museum in there and an art gallery. And, and then it was going to have a central tower. And, and in that central tower, there were going to be arches all the way around filled with statues of himself and his siblings and their parents. Well, that was 1897, he started. 1902, he died. And it's also called, not only McCaig's Tower, it's called McCaig's Folly because he had these grand plans, but all that you have is the outside wall, two arches high. He couldn't finish his plans. It's a standing monument, I say, to this verse. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. And so the psalmist says, don't be foolish, don't put your trust in princes. But it's not just that he doesn't want you to put your trust in princes, he actually has a higher goal in mind. He wants you to put your trust in the God of Jacob, to have your hope in the Lord his God. So he has your best interests. He has his own best interests at heart, and he has your best interests at heart. He, he knows that it's of, of no value to put your trust in, in fellow humans, that there's only success and prosperity and blessing if our confidence is in the Lord. And so he not only tells us that that's the way of wisdom, but just as he told us why we ought not to put our trust in princes, he now tells us why we ought to put our trust in the Lord. He argues with himself. And the first thing he says about the Lord is that the Lord is strong. You can see this in verse six. The God of Jacob is the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. All the massive mountains were called into existence by the word of the Lord. The endless sea is his creation. And it's not just that God is a big picture type God, but even the, the microorganisms, the organisms that you can only see with a, with a microscope, all those things have been called into existence by God. And, and it's called into existence by the breath of his mouth. He spoke and it came to pass. He's a God of, of mammoth strength. He's a colossal figure. He's, he's strong, he's incredibly mighty, and he also keeps faith forever. I think that what the psalmist is saying at the end is that not only does God create all things and then lets the world run on its own steam, no, no, he's the God who upholds all things. 
so that the sun rises at his behest. It will set tonight at his command that everything is kept into orbit, not just because of the laws of nature, but because he is carefully and by the second upholding all things. That's the kind of God he is, just so great and majestic, a God of mammoth power and unspeakable might. God is strong. And I think that uh, we probably don't think about that as much as we do. We think that there are limitations to God, that this country, for instance, is too far gone, that there's no going back because uh, we've ruined ourselves so desperately that it's irretrievable. But God is mighty. He's strong. And this is, uh, this is what Jeremiah, you, you might know Jeremiah 32. I think it was uh, actually that chapter that was Henry, uh, Henry and um, Mrs. Henry. Yes, <laughs> Je- Jenny, that was their, their wedding text, uh, though perhaps not this verse, but maybe it was this verse. But, but Jeremiah has been told to, to buy some land. And he says, well, this just seems silly because we're under siege. It's a buyer's market, so, so why would I buy land? It's never gonna sell again because the people of God are in exile and, and it's, it's gonna be worthless. And, and, the, and the Lord says to Jeremiah, no, no, people will populate this land again. You'll get your money back. And Jeremiah says, ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Or think about uh, the apostles in Acts. They had just been uh, arrested, arraigned before the Sanhedrin, forbidden to preach anymore in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they were released and they went to a prayer meeting and they lifted up their voices together to God and listen to what they say. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That is, they reminded themselves of the strength and power of their God. That's just helpful right there, isn't it? You can think of your situations, your struggles, your burdens, the desperation of your life. You think that there's no hope, that uh, you just might might as well just settle into uh, this kind of life because there's no way it could ever be changed. Well, perhaps you can't change it, but God is the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. He's the one who keeps faith forever. Nothing is too difficult for him. Nothing is beyond his ability. He's strong, I tell you. But it's not just that he's strong. That's good, of course, but but we know that uh, there can be people who are strong and who are able to help you, but don't really care to help you. In fact, there are, there are people who are strong and know your weakness, and rather than coming to your aid, they use your weakness against you. We, we know people like that. They're belligerent. You can, uh, I could illustrate this by children. Imagine that you're on the side of the 401 and you have a, a punctured tire. And for whatever reason, you, there's no one in your car that can change the tire. And so you're sitting at the side of the road Imagine that you don't have cell phones and uh, you don't have Canadian Tire Auto Club or things of that nature. You're just hoping for the kindness of someone 
someone to stop and to help you. And, and you see all these cars whizzing by and some of the occupants of these vehicles, like they're big, burly men. You know, they, they don't even need a jack to uh, lift up your car. They could just do it by hand and unthread the, the lug nuts, just, just all by themselves. That's how strong they are. But they, they don't care about you. They just keep on going. You're not in their agenda. They're not thinking about you. They're not, they're not going through life wondering, how can I be kind to someone else? They're strong, but they're not kind at all. And then finally, a car pulls up behind you, and you're excited. Now we'll be on our way shortly. Someone is here to help us. And uh, it takes a long time for the car door to open, and finally it does open, and and uh, there's this little old lady that comes out of the car. And she has a cane. And she comes up to the window. She says, Sonny, what's your problem? And you tell her, well, our tire is punctured and I, I can't fix it myself. I, I need someone else to, to help me fix it. And she says, well, my back's not as good as it used to be. I would love to help, but I can't. Well, at least she's kind. But she's not strong. You see, for someone to be of value to you, they, they must be both strong and kind. Because uh, it's only that combination that will be of any success. Now, if you had to choose between the company, you, you'd rather be with the lady who's kind but not strong than with these guys who are strong but not kind, of course. But the wonderful thing is that with the Lord, you don't have to choose the one or the other. Because the psalmist goes on to say, not only is God strong, he's also kind. And the way he demonstrates the kindness of the Lord in verses seven uh, through nine is to, to highlight the most vulnerable and the weak in Israelite society, those who were oppressed, and uh, those who were hungry and prisoners, probably unjustly imprisoned by the wealthy and the rich, those who were ravished by uh, this sin-cursed world, those who were blind and bowed down, uh, those who were the epitome of weakness and vulnerability in Israelite society, the sojourners, the widow, and the fatherless. Now, what does God do for all of these weak and helpless people? Well, he's strong. And he's kind. And, and so he, he exercises his strength and his kindness. And uh, to, to the oppressed and the hungry, he gives uh, food and freedom. To the prisoners, he opens the eyes of the blind, those who are bowed down, weighed down by the burdens of life. He, he lifts up and uh, the sojourner, the widow and the fatherless, he's their champion. That is, he uses his strength and his power for their blessing. He's strong and he's kind. And then notice that he's strong and kind forever. The Lord, this Lord, who's strong and kind, will reign forever. There's no regime change on the horizon. There's no one who's going to unseat God from the throne of majesty. So you can put your full confidence in him that he will be this way for you today, whatever your troubles and difficulties are. And next year, he'll, he'll be the same because he's the unchangeable God. And when you're older, in 20 or 30 or 40 years, 
He'll be there as well, the same strong and kind God. You get weak and weary, but he doesn't. He's the unchangeably strong and kind God. He is strong and kind forever. Will he be there for my children? Of course, grandchildren, yes. To all generations, this is your God. He's a strong and kind king. But you may have noticed that uh, the psalmist draws a contrast at the end of verse eight and the end of verse nine. He says at the end of verse eight, the Lord loves the righteous. The end of verse nine, the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. That is, God is strong and kind, but he's not strong and kind for everybody. He's strong and kind for the righteous, whereas he uses his strength to bring to ruin the way of the wicked. Now you know, because of your familiarity with the Bible, that the righteous and the wicked are the two categories of Scripture, and the only two categories of humans, rather, that the Scripture has. We sang from Psalm 1, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. Those are the only two kinds of people. And when you think about the righteous and the wicked, we, we ought not to make the mistake of thinking that what determines their uh, status is their obedience, that the righteous are those who only do righteous and the wicked are, only the, are those who only do wicked, wicked. It's true that the righteous predominantly do righteously and the wicked are characterized by wickedness. But the key determination of who is righteous and who is wicked is their response to this king. There are those who know that God is good and kind and who swear allegiance to him. They bend the knee, they take him at his word, they trust in him and entrust themselves to him. These are the righteous, those who receive this God as their God. Notice what the psalmist says in in verse five. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. Or at the end of verse 10, your God, O Zion. So there is this relationship between uh, the individual and this God. Those are the ones who are the righteous. And the wicked, those are the ones who say, we do not want this king to rule over us. I don't need anyone. I'm self-sufficient. I can take care of myself. I don't want to acknowledge any weakness whatsoever. I'm strong, and I don't need any help from anyone else. That is, they reject this God of strength and kindness. And to put it really clearly, your response to the Lord Jesus Christ is the demarcation point. That determines whether you're in the category of the righteous or in the category of the wicked. What you do with the Lord Jesus determines it all. Because as you read, as we read through the psalm and as you listen to it, you, you can't help but think that this is a description of, of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's strong, isn't he? And you might say, well, if you read through the gospels, he doesn't appear to be that strong, but, but then you realize that before the biography of our Lord Jesus was written in the gospels, he existed. He existed as the eternal God, 
dwelling in fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And, and, and that this God is the one who created all things. Paul says that about the Lord Jesus in Colossians 1. By him, all things were made and they were made for him. So he had eternal self an eternal existence and eternal self-existence. He was the great and mighty creator of the ends of the earth. And when he came into this world, it's true that his life is characterized by weakness. He was born as a helpless child. He needed his mother to change his diaper and to nurse him. And then Herod was determined to destroy him. And his disciples didn't understand him. And the Jews, the religious leaders who should have welcomed him, they plotted against him. And the whole might of the Roman Empire was against him. And it seems that Jesus capitulated because he went to the cross in weakness. He died there as a common criminal. You would think that his life is characterized by weakness. But it's not the whole story of his life. And, and you catch glimpse, glimpses of his strength and power in the gospel account. He comes to the temple and he sees them trading money and selling animals and he throws them out. You see him at the grave of Lazarus. He had been dead for four days, four days. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And, and he comes out. That's the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is strong. He is mighty. He's able to raise the dead, to heal the sick. And even the cross itself was a display of his strength. You have to understand it the way he understands it. But remember what he said in John 12. Now is the, the hour has come for the prince of this world to be cast out because the, the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in weakness was the greatest display of his power because by his death, he has crushed the head of the serpent. He's strong and he's kind, very kind. As you read through the gospels, you see the sweetness of our Lord Jesus. He'd been ministering to the crowds and he wants to get away and rest, he and his disciples. And so they leave and the crowds notice that they're leaving and follow them. And Jesus sees the crowds and you know what you might say. You might uh, wish they would just go home because you had gone away to rest and here they are again harassing you. And but our Lord Jesus, he sees the crowds. He sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion on them. And uh, he ministers to them. Or he, uh, he comes upon a funeral procession outside the town of Nain. It's, it's a widow bringing her only son to the grave. And Jesus stops and touches the bier and speaks to the young man. And then he tenderly gives the young man back to his mother. He's sweet, kind. Or uh, remember Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is blind and he's begging and everyone's sick of hearing him. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Why don't you just shut up, Bartimaeus? No one's interested in you. And Jesus stops and he calls Bartimaeus to him. Now remember, Jesus is the king. So you would expect him to say, Bartimaeus, you've acknowledged me to be the son of David. So now it would only be right for you to say, uh, Jesus, what can I do for you? 
But that's not the way the Lord Jesus is. He says to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? He's kind, so gracious. Or, or think about the leper who runs to Jesus and falls on his knees and implores Jesus and says, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You're strong. Are you kind? And Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the man and says, I will be clean. He's kind. How kind is the Lord Jesus? He is so kind, so incredibly, indescribably kind that uh, he went to the cross for sinners. Because you think about the cross, there's, there's no way the holy, sinless Son of God could ever wish to go to the cross to be under the curse of his Father whom he loved. And yet, it says, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That's how kind the Lord Jesus is, that he would go to hell for you and take upon himself all of your sins and your failures and your disobediences and your rebellious ways and then take the punishment and the curse of his Father for them. He is kind. And he's kind and strong eternally. He sits now at the right hand of the Father on the throne of majesty until all his enemies become a footstool for his feet. He's the one who unfolds a scroll of history because he's overcome. He's strong in heaven. He's, he has a whole world in his hands. He's, he's orchestrating all the events of world history for, for the goal of the glory of God and for his own preeminence and the blessing of his people. He's strong even now. And he's kind even now. Some of you have had friends and you were close and then the friends moved away and now that you don't see them as much, your friendship has kind of fallen apart. You might look them up on Facebook every once in a while to see how they're doing, but, but that relationship isn't there. That kindness, that mutual kindness and affection is gone. And so you think, well, Jesus is in heaven now, so far removed from us. He has the whole universe to govern. He certainly won't think about us now. Well, when Jesus went to heaven, he was glorified. And his heart of compassion and kindness and tenderness was glorified as well so that his heart is even more capacious now than it ever was. There's more room in there for affection and for the display of kindness to his people, to those in need. He doesn't love his church less. He loves them more now than he did while he was on earth. He is strong and kind, and he's strong and kind forever. That's your king. And that's who you need. It doesn't really matter what situation you find yourself in this evening. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, well, you need the Lord Jesus Christ. And the thing is, it's only the Lord Jesus who can give you that awareness that you need the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you need to tell him that you are self-reliant, self-confident, but foolishly so 
because uh, things are not going the way that they ought to go and they aren't going that way well in this life. And, and you know that in the life to come, when you stand before the judgment seat of God, it's, it's not your own efforts that are going to avail anything because you've learned. You ought not to put your confidence in princes in a son of man in whom there's no salvation. When you stand before God on that day, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? Any question, any answer to that question that begins with, because I, well, it's just ruled out of order. It's just futile. It's not because you are good or better than most or you're better than you used to be or you wish you were better than you used to be. It's not because of any connections that you have to the church or to grandparents or anything of that. You cannot put your confidence in princes. The only answer is that you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is strong and kind and is strong and kind forever. But even if you're a Christian, um, you know your own weaknesses, your struggles with sin, the temptations. And you know that... uh, that there are situations in your life that you know need to be changed, but you can't even change your desire to seek change. You're so weak and helpless. You, you so desperately need the Lord Jesus Christ to, to help you, to come to your aid. I remember a person in our church who was caught up in sin for, for a number of years. And it finally became public. And uh, in the providence of God, I, I called this person and they answered the phone and, and uh, they lamented. They said, you know, John, I, I know I ought not to do this. I know that if I keep this up, I'm going to hell. But you know what the problem is? This person said, I just can't change my desire. I don't want to stop this. I know it's going to destroy me, but I don't want to stop this. And I I said to this person, I said, uh, well, you just need to tell the Lord Jesus that. You need to go to him and say, I can't change myself. I must, but I can't. So unless you change me, I'll be destroyed. And I said, the Lord Jesus will, will hear you. He'll receive you. And this person did that very thing and it was, it was the change. All desire for her sin at that moment was taken away because the Lord Jesus is strong and kind and he is that eternally. So I, I don't know what your struggles are. I know what mine are. I know what some of mine are. But I, I don't know what yours are, but I'm sure they're similar to mine. And, and what we need more than anything else and more than anyone else and what we repeatedly need and what we constantly need and what we need without any, any break is the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can go to him in all of your weakness and he's strong and, and you might be embarrassed to tell him these things. You'd be embarrassed to tell me these struggles and I, I, I wouldn't want to tell you some of my struggles but but the Lord Jesus will never use your struggles and your weaknesses against you because he's so kind, so gracious, so tenderhearted, so compassionate. And you just tell him everything and say, Lord Jesus, here's my problem. 
And you've told me not to put my trust in princes, and I know I shouldn't because I've tried to deal with this for years, and I've been so thoroughly unsuccessful. So I come to you in my weakness. I've heard about you. I've heard you're strong. I've heard you're kind. And I've heard that you will come to my aid. And the marvelous thing about the Lord Jesus is that he will. He has never turned anyone away who came to them, to, who came to him in weakness and crying out for his grace and his strength. He is that kind of God. And you need to tell yourself that, and you need to tell one another that. And in all of your encouragement and counseling of one another, to point, point each other and point yourself to the Lord Jesus, he who is a strong and kind king. I haven't, uh, I've read, but I haven't uh, explained the title that the psalmist gives in verse five, the, the God of Jacob. It's, it's not an uncommon title. You, you find it in Psalm 46, verse seven and verse 11. You find it in other Psalms. You find it in Isaiah, the God of Jacob. But when you think about this, this is the, the most appropriate name for God in the context of this psalm. Because you know who Jacob is. Jacob is the schemer. He's the man who's clever, too clever by far. There's never a problem that Jacob couldn't scheme a solution to. And, and you remember in, in, Jer in Genesis 32, he has just been um, serving his father-in-law, been deceived by him for for 14 years and it's time for him to go back to to where he came from but the problem there is that there's Esau and uh, he had hoodwinked Esau out of the birthright so many years earlier and Esau was livid with him and and so uh, Jacob's really in between a, a rock and a hard place the rock is Laban he can't go back the hard place is Esau he can't really go forward so what do you do well if you're Jacob this is what you do you scheme you plan you think how can I pull one over on my brother. And so he divides all his wealth into these, these groups. And then he puts a large space in between these groups to, to make him seem more wealthy than he actually is. And then, and then he says, I'm gonna give a gift to my brother Esau, hoping to appease him. And, and I'll do the gift the same way. I'll, I'll, I'll have a, a flock of sheep and then a large space and a flock so that, so that when it comes past Esau, he's thinking, is there no end to all the kindness of, of Jacob and all his wealth? And Jacob thinks, this will solve my problem. This will cure my dilemma. I know this will work. And then he sends his family ahead of him. He goes back over the, the brook Jabbok. And that night, God meets him. And God wrestles with him. And all night they wrestle. And Jacob's prevailing. He's the self-made man. He doesn't need anyone. He's okay. He can figure things out. He's... He's the prince that you can trust. You can put your trust in and, and uh, everything will work out all right. And then uh, the Lord touches his hip socket and throws his hip out of joint. Well, you can't wrestle when your hip's out of joint because you can't pivot on a, a hip out of joint to, to throw one over on your, your opponent. And so Jacob becomes a weak man, the strong, self-made, self-confident man becomes a weak man. And in his weakness, he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. 
That's what the psalm is saying. Don't pretend to be stronger than you are. Put no confidence in yourself or in others. But in weakness, cling to this God who is strong and kind and say, I will not let you go until you bless me. Because I need you more than anything else. I need your grace. And if you do that, then you will be blessed because blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And and Genesis 32 ends in in a marvelous way. You remember that uh, Jacob goes on his way. He's limping because of his hip socket. But it says, and the sun rose upon him. I think that's such a fitting picture of, of the Christian life, that we go through life limping because of weakness. But that's okay, because the sunshine of God's grace is shining upon us as we head through life into that full day when all weakness will dissipate and all sadness will be gone and all struggle will be over and we will be forever with the Lord. The psalmist ends with this call to to, uh, the church, praise the Lord. That's how he starts, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being and he ends, praise the Lord. And You think, well, what else would you really do? Really, what else would you do when you know this God except praise him? Because he's strong and he's kind and he's strong and kind forever. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God and gracious Father in heaven, we bless you for the revelation of yourself in Scripture. And it is, uh, it is glorious to know you as you have revealed yourself to us. As a God of might and power who exercises his might and power for the blessing of his people because he's kind, generous, large-hearted, open-handed. And uh, we pray, our God, that you would uh, give us grace, that we would be finished with all self-confidence, and that we would think... Uh, of ourself less, and that we would have eyes only for the Lord Jesus and all of his mighty grace for weak and helpless sinners. We pray that you would strengthen us so that we would cling to you and not let you go until you bless us. We pray for those who are still self-reliant and because of that, really ultimately hopeless, we pray that you would open their eyes that they might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, your son. Bless us in this coming week as we go to our homes and our schools and our workplaces and our neighborhoods. Help us to be aroma of Christ. Help us to testify by the way that we live that we have found the pearl of great price and that uh, having him we lack nothing. Give us joy in the journey strength in the midst of our weaknesses, eyes looking forward to the day when everything becomes new and help us to run hard for your glory. And we pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.